If we focus more of our attention on what's emergent and how system shifts can happen more rapidly, I think it liberates more of our creative energy. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post-Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good. And today's guest definitely does that. Today's guest is Stephen Dynan. He's the founder and CEO of the Shift Network and a member of the Transformational Leadership Council and Evolutionary Leaders. The Shift Network was founded in 2010 and has served over 700,000 people worldwide, featuring over 50 core faculty and 1,000 thought leaders in domains as diverse as spirituality, peace, holistic health, psychology, parenting, enlightened business, shamanism, indigenous wisdom, and sustainability. Stephen is a graduate of Stanford University in human biology and of the California Institute of Integral Studies in East-West Psychology. He helped create and directed the Esalen Institute Center for Theory and Research, a think tank of leading scholars, researchers, and teachers to explore human potential frontiers. He is also the author of Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All and of Radical Spirit. And now here's Stephen. Welcome, Stephen Dynan, to What Could Possibly Go Right. Uh, and and the very question of this podcast can seem like a search for hope in dark times, but it's really more of a search for a systems perspective as we lurch from one crisis or scandal to the next. Um, and our, our podcast started when the pandemic started, and now you and I are talking as the restrictions are being lifted, considering that the virus is endemic and our tools more robust for preventing and curing the illness. But two years ago when I started, I really did have hopes that the cracks in the worldview of consumerism and exploitation of the earth might provide an opening for well, better outcomes, a course correction at even this late date. I think you and I are both possibility thinkers, people who believe in the higher consciousness and let's say practical miracles, a capacity to pop out of outmoded worldviews and, and, you know, live in a world of love, right? <laughs> so instead, the pandemic has sobered me about the forces that will not yield power and privilege and allow me my happy stories about a happier landing um, uh, come to pass. And so, um, yeah, what could possibly go right still seems like the right question to actually clear my mind and, and reveal my own preferences. Um, and my guests have certainly been my certainty disturbers. They have removed my blinders. They've inspired me. They've wised me up. And so I know this pandemic has also challenged your thinking as well. And I am really interested in your answers as we seem to be blinking into the light to our core question, which is what could possibly go right? <laughs> well, I love that set overall setup. And I think that uh, being a, an optimist with uh, sobriety is, is a good uh, stance to have in today's world. Um, 
I remain a long-term optimist, um, and I actually feel um, kind of on a more visceral level, a confidence that we are going to make this planetary transition to a truly global species that is peaceful and sustainable on this planet. But but I think we're going to push it right up to the edge of uh, precariousness because humans like drama, <laughs> and we and we tend to respond best uh, in under duress and under 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 crisis conditions in many ways. So I think that if, if we focus more of our attention on what's emergent and how system shifts can happen more rapidly, I think it liberates more of our creative energy. And I, I want to give a couple examples of things that, that um, we've been thinking about at, at Shift and that we're inspired by. So one is the Cool Cities Challenge, which David Gershon had the impulse to create. It's, uh, it was started with cool blocks. It's a system for enabling people on a block over block level to reduce their carbon uh, impact and also get more resilient, get more uh, com- connected as a community. They templated it in Palo Alto and uh, Los Angeles. And I seeded the idea with him to like really focus on California as, as uh, because we're so influential to the rest of the world. And so he kept putting foot in front of, you know, one foot in front of the other and it got it up to the state level. They had a contest for the first three cities, a million dollars to each city. They got $2 billion of funding backing them. And now the governor's office is fully on board with this. And, and the first three cities are aiming to demonstrate carbon neutrality by 2030, which is a super audacious timeline. Right. And sometimes audacious timelines can be pie in the sky and they can be like, oh, dismissive, or they can be great engines for innovation because they take us out of the box of the possible. And they say, what if, what if we could flip the grid on the, uh, the uh, on the electrical grid? What if we could accelerate adoption of, um, of uh, electric cars? What about if we you know, solarize all the roofs? What are the incentive systems that we need to get in place and the grassroots technology to reduce carbon, make the make those system level shifts? And so by, by harnessing the spirit of possibility 2030 and then having the state as a whole start to move towards 2035 um, from 2045 to accelerate the timelines, recognizing that that is more or less the planetary timing that we have to be on. We've got to decarbonize really rapidly. And to start with that spirit of possibility and bring in intelligence about how to help humans make changes more quickly and have those changes be really something that enhances their lives as well. And so I think what David has done is, is tremendously valuable as a, as a demonstration. And they're doing three, the first three cities, they're piloting the programs and, and then they're aiming to have 25 next year and then hundred the next year. And so it basically starts to snowball and some of the, you know, many billionaires on the planet who have a spare billion or two to put into things um, and can put some of that to avert the worst of climate change. And so I think that's on some, a little bit on the system side. And I think that if we look over on the, you know, the regeneration side, um, there's the increasing recognition of tree planting as an example of reforestation as a real solution that can give us a lot more uh, time. Uh, we were just in Mexico for uh, five weeks. There's and the place we were staying. Her father is is kind of leading um, reforestation efforts in Michoacan, and it's literally has a million seedlings or over a million seedlings of plants that they're nurturing at this huge estate, and that they're planting in in Michoacan. And that that effort then inspires other efforts. We made a commitment to. Um, to plant a million trees via shift. And we've gotten to about 260,000 of those Mm -hmm. so far. We did a big online event around that, working with Tree Sisters, which I think is a really great group that pairs women's empowerment work and a sense of uh, reconnecting to nature through, um, through planting trees. 
So if you just look at it at a system level, if you get some of these systemic shifts happening more and more rapidly, so you've got the greening of cities, you've got the adoption of new technologies for um, or acceleration of uh, you know solar and electric cars, and those adoption curves are happening pretty fast. Like the number of electric cars, I think, uh, sold doubled last year in China. China is like way ahead of where the U.S. is, something like fifteen percent of the new cars. So you know they're probably only three or four years maybe away from having more than fifty percent of new cars be electric. Um, and so all of these things start to cascade into each other. And if we can create more of a spirit of possibility that like this decade is showtime for the planet it really is. It's like, we can't delay until like, maybe we'll get around to it in 2060. It's like, we've got to make some system shifts quickly. And if we can make it more fun, we can make more engaging, let's build tree planting into every act of commerce that we do every, every, you know, and so we're, we, we created a, um, as a, as an example of the innovation, we, tuning in with Claire, we said, what if we create a tree positive benefit plan? So not only do you get the, um, you get your benefit, you, you get your health benefits and your retirement benefits, all that, but we also plant as a company, 10 trees for every employee every month. And it's not a huge investment, but it starts to be something that other companies can adopt. So that's the change strategy is not just plant the 10 trees per employee per month for shift, but to inspire that to other companies to follow suit. So tree positive becomes a business plan or a, a benefit plan that other uh, companies recognize. And so that's how you start to cascade up to mm. if we can plant a trillion trees effectively, sustainably working with local leadership um, in a way that restores, helps to restore ecosystems. We there once were I think there's, you know, once we're up six trillion trees on the planet, we're down to about three trillion and we could bump it back up to four trillion. That can give us another decade on climate change efforts. And it also makes much more beautiful. So like the work that's happening with, um, I, I don't I remember his name, Jose Luis, I think is his name um, in uh, Michoacan, you know, that that's happening, you know, those kind of efforts are getting supported, amplified all over the world. And so that we see the, see examples of, the regreening of our planet in a way that's really holistic and whole. One other area that I think is 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 game changing that is is moving incredibly quickly now is um, working with uh, psychedelics. This has kind of been a long underground part of like what helped to fuel a lot of the consciousness shifting of the hippie era, and it's like and it sort of was a little bit marginalized for a while, went underground, but now it's really gaining mainstream traction in psychological circles, health insurance companies the VA hospital, looking at all these things. And so these, you know, the incredibly ancient and powerful technologies for shifting consciousness and doing wide scale change of change of worldview are going to be increasingly legalized. Oregon's already leading the way on that. There's you know, multiple countries. And so that can also be a, a tipping point phenomenon three, four years out from now when you're getting really effective systems for initiating people into a deep sense of reverence and care for the planet. And that just, you know, one or two people getting turned on can lead to new organizations, lead to a shift of a whole larger company. So that's a, another game-changing uh, um, thing that is, is going to become you know, professionalized, becomes more, you know, psychological certification, board certification, and it's, and it's happening remarkably fast. There's a lot of venture money pouring into that space. There's a lot of innovation. I've talked to um, one of our investors in Shift has been working on lobbying behind the scenes of the Republicans, getting uh, the VA, getting things into the, 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 the Veterans Administration budget. And I think as we see that come online and the science get more and more solid and more countries start to legalize, that starts to really open the possibility for 
a more accelerated kind of uh, shifting of consciousness and worldview than uh, than we've ever seen historically, and that can help to catalyze these other shifts. Anyway, so those are just three areas that I that I think are really game changing and, and innovative and inspiring for me. Well, I'm uplifted. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. You know, it's like um, what David is doing, David Grishan, you know, I've known him for many, many, many years, you know, his neighborhood organizing, you know, all the way from, from the earth run that he did, you know, with a torch going around the earth, you know, he's a great systems creator and, and global thinker. And, and, and we're actually doing, doing that where I live on a local level, we have a climate crisis action committee now in our little town, and we are recommending actions for, for our city. And, and that actually, you know, it's like the resistance to climate work, just even the narrative that there's a, there's problem, you know, that's, to me, that's a sign, you know, that the walls are coming down. Denial used to be like thick as, you know, thick as concrete. And just even five years ago, you know, now yeah. it's coming down. So and I think the, the best thing with the pandemic too is like, you know, in terms of your, your thing is like the, the one thing that I think is going to be the most lasting change is that we're going to disrupt having to work from an office, like, like <laughs> that, like location independence, people being able to create really beautiful, green, sustainable environments and then work remotely and have a, have a prosperous life with that. That that's a game changing thing. So you know, people aren't stuck in big cities and traffic jams and burning a lot of carbon to get there, that it's really going to open up. Um, you know, for us, we're, we're planning to, to spend a chunk of our year in Mexico now and, and the United States and, you know, we, we don't have a, we, we like over our office. And so people are, have moved to wherever they feel most fed. And that also creates a different level. We, we live, you know, in 30 acres of, of woods now uh, versus where we were before. And so it creates a different level of connection and immersion in more natural settings that wasn't really as possible just two years ago. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I've been living that life for 50 years. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, so I wonder, there's two things I'm hearing. One is that if you've built a platform, if you've built, you know, a platform being a mailing list, a point of view, a narrative, you know, like hard work to become a reliable source, that you really do have power, you know, that you're now using the shift platform, not just for producing programs, but 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 producing benefit, producing well-being, you're being able to actually be much more influential, you know, the people who follow you, people who pay attention to you. And I think that's I think that's inspiring. And I I presume that there are many people who've built platforms like this who are using their the power of their platform to make a difference. Uh, I know I've been quite involved. I'm sort of like grand old lady, you know, of this fire community, the financial independence, retire early community. And there are literally millions of people who are on that path. It's very technical, but, you know, it is, as it's practiced, but I'm recognizing that I too, you know, it's like, how do all of us, and I'm, I'm saying this, not just as Vicky, but as people listening, that everybody listening to this has in some way, a platform, a way, a, a place to speak from and the buy-in from a set of people, be it a million people or 20 people. And so there's a little bit of opportunity to have the courage to use your platform 
to promote things and lift things up. So I, that's one thing I'm noticing. But the other thing, uh, and I'm in agreement with everything you said, is that I'm so aware of the justice component of this, that there are billions of people on the planet who cannot relocate, who cannot go online, who um, who don't have cars, you know, <laughs> so electric cars isn't that exciting, you know. Um, there's, do you think about that at all? About there's an aspect to the breakthroughs that are we're capable of making at this time that are still participating in leaving a lot of people behind. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of it a little bit more like you know, it's like the internet as example. I mean, you know, 1997, 98, there was maybe 1% of the world's population on the internet. Now it's mm. probably 70 or 80%. So yes, there are people behind, but it's like, as the adoption curve keeps accelerating, it becomes more and more ubiquitous. And, and hopefully as, as the technologies are greener and greener, that it's like, it's, it's better to have uh, people, you know, right now it's not necessarily a great thing to have everybody in the world have a car. Um, so we sort of, there is, there is a justice component to that, but I, I, I kind of see that, you know, that, that, that part of where we can also bring that innovative spirit is by empowering more entrepreneurship, um, more globally. So I'll give an example of one, one uh, organization I really love is Kiva.org is like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I have maybe three grand, I don't know, not even that much money that I, I have parked there. And then I just recycle, recirculated it probably to a hundred different developing world entrepreneurs who, you know, I put in 25, 50, hundred bucks to this one or that one. It's, and it just kind of like subtly connects me to, um, to different people around the world and what they, um, what they're up to and just creating little engines of innovation, little businesses that, that can then bring more prosperity to, to their, their family and their lives. And I think that, you know, you can do, we can do that on a bigger scale too. We don't have to just do micro entrepreneurship, but there's a sort of macro entrepreneurship that really is focused more on sustainable development for, for folks so that they can, they can create their more, their more innovative version of their future too. And, uh, you know, we've done some stuff with wells where, you know, it's like sometimes uh, having a really good well and water system helps to revolutionize life in a village somewhere. There's also, you know, all kinds of things that we can do sort of that that don't necessarily take a huge investment um, that just kind of start to weave us together. You know, can we give a a give back percentage? Um, We're we're investing in a place in in Mexico and um, looking at a give back percentage to the community uh, for sort of helping them take their school to the next level. So it's just like, if we bring a little bit of attention, it doesn't have to be like a shift. We decided to allocate 3% of our gross revenues to impact areas just to positively move the needle. So there's always demand to grow a business and salaries and all the expenses that go into producing programs. And it's like, but then we've got our 3% for the larger impact um, on the planet. And, you know, Salesforce did 1%. There's other companies that have started that 1% for the planet philosophy. We decided we'd be a bit more robust than that. And, and it's also something that other companies can replicate. So I, I think if we really think of like how much, how, like there's a lot of ripple effects from these smaller interventions as, and when we scale them up, and that's where it comes back to what you were saying is that every person is now, a, a broadcaster, an influencer, that you have your circle of people you can influence. And it can be as a little, as small as like, 
I'm going to create a two minute video about something that I did that was like really cool in my community and just share a little bit about that and, and then post it on, post it on your, um, you know, one of your social media accounts and encourage people to share that because then that's might touch and inspire somebody else. It's like we, the, the more we're getting touched and inspired by other people's innovations and then replicating that and spreading that on. That's how all of the, most of the big systemic challenges we have um, have little solutions that can just simply ripple up to a big, big enough scale. Yeah, uh, I, I really love that vision. And so another thing I'm just going to throw my, you know, all, all my concerns at you and see how they get transformed in the, in the spirit of Stephen um, is I just been so flummoxed by the level of polarization and the not just misinformation or disinformation, you know, the, the, the fact that everybody has a platform means that it's not, you know, all our sweetness and light people have platforms. Right. So there's a lot of people with platforms and, and, you know, I mean, to be humble, you, we all have partial truths. It's just that some people's truths look a lot more partial. Um, and so, and so what are you seeing in that space of breakthroughs? Not even breakthroughs. I'm not even want to ask breakthroughs. Um, but what are you noticing about that? What, you know, the, the, it would almost be like the narrative resistance to what you're saying. Yeah. What are you seeing in that? Well, I think that um, the things the, the I've tried to align myself um, when I, I did a book in 2016 before uh, Trump was elected and I actually went to both the Democratic and Republican National Convention. So I was in the arena when he was nominated and I'm definitely a more progressive Democrat. And uh, so, you know, there's I think there's some legitimate things to be worried about in that whole development and the move towards authoritarianism and misinformation. And and I also see from the kind of widest angle lens, like my sense has been that Trump is partially here to collapse a certain worldview and pattern. It's like, while he's, while he's influential and powerful, it's, it's scary. And it's ultimately going to sort of collapse a certain pattern that was, that was no really anti-evolutionary. And by becoming an embodiment of on a simplistic level, the embodiment of dysfunctional patriarchy, like mm-hmm. all aggression all the time, just dominate, you know, all of that, then, then it sort of like ultimately invalidates that point of view and it, it compromises it. And I think that, that there's a maturation of the Republican Party that's going to have to happen in the aftermath of the collapse now the the collapse has been a lot more slow motion than I ever would have imagined, and certain aspects of the pattern have been more tenacious. Um, and I think that's the way that the way that I try to look at that is like, what is, what are the the underpinning people and the worldview that that need to be honored and validated? So when I wrote my book, I try I, I sought out Republicans who I thought were thoughtful to provide critiques, so that I could write about the values of America in a more holistic way than just a kind of progressive way. And I did get some endorsements and uh, partnerships with people on the right. I actually created uh, some events. Um, we created a, a National Day of Healing and Reconciliation. And I partnered with Rich Tom was a founder of Log Cabin Republicans. And so there's a, there's a way in which there's a, a kind of a, a feeling of dishonoring and disrespect that sort of is part of what has created the eruption or the reaction that manifests as, as Trumpism, right? And so it's like people feel left behind, they feel dishonored, they feel like progressives and, and liberals are not, not respecting them as beings and 
they're getting left behind. And then there's an eruption of anger in the form of a, you know, kind of culture warrior who's going to show them who's boss on a simplistic level. We can go more into the nuances of it. But I think part of the healing is there's a kind of a reweaving or a kind of in a way it's like a revalidation of the intrinsic you know, divinity and honoring of, of individuals who, who um, might be more rural, who might be more conservative, who might be, have values that, 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 that actually in some ways are part of the bedrock of, the, uh, of American values. And so if we try to focus our attention less on the warfare on the surface and more of the, the healing underneath of the kind of the rupture, like the, the warfare on the surface has created a rupture into like, you know, camps that are, that are basically seeing the other as evil rather than there's kind of an actually a complementarity of value systems left and right. And, and, and sometimes if we can, if we can be part of resolving that, like, um, you know, Joan Blades uh, started working with, I'm forgetting his name, but who was on the right to create this uh, various, various organizations that are really about bridging, uh, bridging divides, all sides. And, so, so she was recognizing, coming, having co-founded MoveOn.org, that the dysfunctional polarization was just not really helping, um, and um, and so, so that part of this kind of like one-to-one connection to connection, heart to heart. What are the deeper concerns and values underneath political positions? Um, and that that starts to re- reweave things together. So I kind of see there's this broad arc of an exaggeration of of a dysfunctional pattern, in this case, the kind of hyper-masculine authoritarianism, um, you know, just trying to dominate for the sake of dominance that I think is really seized the Republican Party and that that's going to collapse in some fashion as, uh, and that that out of the seedbed of that, then a kind of a more of a complementary version of like political differences can emerge. And so, it's you know it's a tricky landscape to navigate, but I do think I do think that that um, if we can get beyond the political polarization in our own hearts and minds, and understand people in a deeper way, it starts to create um, a different kind of uh, foundation for related growth. Because you know I, I would say in my thirties I kind of saw more of the conservatives as the problem in, in a way that we need like we could just get rid of them and we could we make the make, make the make the country we knew as possible. And now it's a little bit more like, well, how do we fully come to a place of integrating the the best of of both left and right and in a way that creates a synthesis and respects some of the the wisdom that might be held on both sides. And that that it doesn't mean that I I'm not a progressive, I mean I still skew towards being a progressive Democrat, but it's a little bit different spirit of engagement um, that that I personally now I'm a stand for, and I, and I try and I try to watch myself so that I'm not intrinsically just dehumanizing or denigrating other people just because of their value systems, um, which is part of what fuels some of the outrage and polarization as well. Absolutely, absolutely. That's as I was saying in the beginning. You know, there's been a lot of revelations and sobriety coming out of the pandemic, and and one of the things for me has been, you know, the opening my eyes to the to how in in subtle ways i have been promoting my messages and my vision in such a way that it just really does come across that i think i know better <laughs> and you know to whatever degree i'm not sure you know out there what people think of me but but i i could feel it in myself i could feel like i've got to drop that i've got to drop the i know 
I have this cool thing over here and I know, you know, sort of like the vacuum cleaner saleswoman. (laughs) Uh So I've had to, I've had to question that in myself and it's actually been so beneficial to my capacity to see more clearly, really. Uh, So I'm going to throw another one at you because like everything in the kitchen sink, Um, there's up, you know, if I squint in one way and look what's happening, um, I think it, in a way there's, you know, the whole, this sort of the meta singularity crowd, there is a way in which I think some people are optimistic because it's a view that human intelligence is going to get uploaded into the virtual world. And as that happens, and as more, you know, um, technological advances happen, the need for complex, confused human beings, the need for humans at a scale that we have is going to be less and that there are going to be more and more people who really don't have a place in the world that's coming into being in that particular sort of singularity version of hope that I, I can, I think is out there, you know, whether it's embodied in, you know, um, Elon Musk or, you know, th- the guys who are putting on ta- cowboy hats and going into space. Uh, so, yeah, do you, what do you see uh, uh, about the technological breakthroughs that are actually leaving, like, living, breathing human beings behind? Do you see anything about that? Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely things to be aware of and sometimes concerned about. Um, I, I think that the the counter um, impulse, that the way I looked at it, I wrote an article back in 2000, quite a while ago, just about how we tend to build the last, the next economic age on the foundation of the last. And so it's like as we move up the actual self-actualization hierarchy, we we move information, which is essentially the the mental age, right? So it's like we're the the people who are the smartest geeks have ended up with the biggest chunk of the pie. And so then there's there's some the there's the uh there's some concern about that. But I think that what we're moving into is is actually a different economic age, which I call the transformation age, where people more and more people are in the business of helping growth. Um, growth of companies, growth of the individuals, growth of that there's the, the creator economy. A lot of these things are more about the higher expression of our of our humanity and divinity. It's really about like actualizing higher levels of consciousness, being uh, creativity and potential. And so I don't think that that economy has limits to it um, because there's always different facets of how we can grow and expand and adventure in different ways. And so there's, you know, whether it, you know, 20 years ago, coaching wasn't a profession. There's millions of coaching at coaches right now. 30 years ago, yoga teacher, you know, we didn't really study becoming a yoga teacher. Now you can be a perfectly viable yoga teacher. And you know, whether you look at massage therapy or you look at, uh, you know, creative skills and trainings like we do online. And, you know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of people who just want to, want to, will invest in things that help them grow and expand their horizons. And, and that that is not going to go away. It's just more and more of our economic value is going to get moved to that. So instead of thinking of like, oh, all these people are getting left behind, which they would if you didn't have another economic sphere to grow into. If, if all we're doing is systematizing the products of the mind and therefore a, a smaller and smaller percentage of 
humanity was able to create those and benefit from those and everybody else is left behind. That, that might be true, but, the, but those are the folks who aren't seeing this whole new sphere of economic exchange that's, that's emergent. And um, it, maybe it was 1% of the economy 100 years ago, and maybe it's 5% of the economy now. It might be 30% or 40% by the end of the century that more and more people are doing that. And so, it's, and so, the, so the people who win in that economy are those who are more advanced in their ability to catalyze growth in others. And so it's like the teachers, the catalysts, the guides, the coaches, all of those folks, it's a, it's an emerging economic sphere and people are doing very well in the, in that arena. And I think that's a great thing because it creates a career pathway for folks who have been automated out, if you will, to like, I'm no longer, you know, I'm no longer needed to produce the software to run this machine, but I am still needed for my softer skills about how to help people, you know, have greater empathy for each other and how to have better relationships in their family and how to, um, you know, how to live live in a way that feels uh, harmonious and whole. So I, I think that I think of that in those. So so you know just because we uh, the 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 um, industrial age automated a lot of agriculture, we still have people working in agriculture. It's just a smaller percentage, it's a couple percentage, and the the percentage of people working in the information industry will hit some point where it starts to shrink and the number of people in the transformation industry will, will keep expanding, I think, um, well into the future. So that's, that's got a little bit my angle on why I'm not overly concerned about it, but sometimes the perspective of people who are like the, the drivers of the, you know, the commodification of the infosphere, um, right. see that, oh, we're just going to leave all these people behind. So we just have to kind of pay them a pay them a monthly stipend so that he can just, you know, not cause too much trouble. I think <laughs> right. the human spirit is more creative than that. And then people will want to contribute in, uh, in another level through their arts, through their creativity, through their, their, their personal development. Right. The great reset. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was probably speaking from the point of view of the, of the great reset. So there's one other system that I want to throw in here. Um, and uh, this podcast is sponsored by the Post Carbon Institute. Um, that is, you know, assisting people in developing, you know, both an understanding of and and tools for a more resilient future, but facing into the collapses that we're in. They, they talk about navigating the great unraveling. So, you know, as you say, there's a worldview that's unraveling, and if you focus on the unraveling, you can be pretty darn upset. Um, but but there, there's a whole stream of people who are probably in your networks and mine um, who think about deep adaptation, that think about that collapse is, is inevitable, it's already happening um, in places in the world that we can't see, but that you know, systems are collapsing and people are, are very much in a sort of a preparation mode not in a, you know, not, a, not in a prepper mode, but in, you know, psychological preparation for an unraveling. Um, and so, and that is sort of not really in your narrative. It's, it's you really are seeing all of the sprouting opportunities here. You're not seeing the, what's closing, you're seeing what's opening. Um, and so do, I'm sure you've encountered this deep adaptation stream of thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find that I don't I don't resonate with it as much as a focus because I find that it's not as much it doesn't liberate as much of my creativity. I, I find that sort of hunkering down in a way it sort of feels a little bit more like, oh, it's like 
I'm more interested in like, let's go for the, let's go for the positive vision of what's emergent, put as much of our attention on that. And then if, you know, and then if we have to adapt in different ways, like that's, you know, that that's just what we have to do. It's like, uh, go for the moon. And if, you know, it's like, if you, because I I think we can, we, I still deeply believe that we can make a whole system turn around that doesn't require some of the more extreme deep adaptation views of like what we're going to have to do, like move into kind of remote areas that are, you know, that because the seas are going to go up a hundred feet and all of that. Like, I I don't believe that those are predestined alternative, predestined pathways. And I think that what can the, the, the allure, sometimes the, the zeitgeist of the deep adaptation crowd can start to treat these things, reify them as if these are future facts rather than likely probabilities, you know, they could be even very likely probabilities, but there's always, you know, whether it's 20% or 50% or 2%, there's always a pathway for a, a much, um, a much different alternative. And so that's where I want to put my creative attention and focus and draw people into. I think there's other people who are more psychologically, you know, oriented to that it feels it feels fun and interesting and exciting to focus on deep deep adaptation. It's just not me, and so I'm not going to make the people wrong who want to focus on that. But I, I think there's a certain level of of preparation that you know everybody's going to have to do. We're going to have to pre- you know prepare for larger heat waves. We're going to have to prepare for um, you know changes changes in ecosystems. That, that there are that there there are certain things that are baked in that are going to be happening. But I think the worst case scenarios are not baked in. Um, I think that we can turn things around and whether it's, you know, it's not, this isn't so much about wagering. It's about where we put our attention and what, what, what's our best contribution. And for me, it's like, it's clear that it's like the breakthrough scenario, the shift to a new possibility for the planet. That's my, that's where my, that's where my creativity, that's where I light up. That's where I get excited. And so um, that's where I'm going to funnel my energy and, and focus. Perfect. We need you. <laughs> no joke. I mean, no joke. I mean, you know, one other real lesson of the pandemic is that there are really multiple, multiple perspectives out there, many of which are not in our the center of our sites. And all perspectives are really necessary because we're in a time of flux. So who knows? You know, who knows which way the waves and the water and the wind will go. And so we really need to to keep that sort of, it's almost like a spiritual entrepreneurial view of things that there's always possibilities opening. Yeah. And I mean, it's like you, it's just like, you just, I'll throw out like one. It's like game changing. They go, what if you got all the fortune 500 CEOs to do like a regimen of deep psych- psychedelic healing work with <laughs> ayahuasca? It's like, how fast could you change the whole fortune 500 focus that way? And that's like, that's six, five, six years out where that's totally fully legal and above board. It's like, what about if we can get the bishops from the Catholic church to engage in plant medicine? Uh, and that changes. The, they're like, Oh, let's put, we got to put Gaia's the healing of Gaia is the center of our worship now. And it's like, you know, there's always these possibilities. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And so we just have to stay open to it and, and stay tuned about what's our highest contribution in that. It might be that somebody gets sparked um, to be like, Oh, that that's, they, they end up doing something that's really game changing. Totally. Any one of us at any time. I love that image. It reminds me of the old days when we used to think about putting acid in the drinking water, but <laughs> <laughs> so 
this would be more voluntary and hopefully a little bit more. Uh, exactly, exactly. A little bit more exactly. well thought through. But, but it's exactly, you know, it's exactly true. Things that were really marginal. I mean, I think this is what I'm hearing from you and what I experienced. Things that were on the margins, ideas, practices that, that you and I and many people we know carried for many years that were sort of like slotted into alternative. And so they were sort of managed as alternative something. These are now filtering into the mainstream. Yeah. And um, who knows what will happen from that? Yeah. Do not lose faith. <laughs> Do not lose faith. And, I, you know, for, for whatever reason, it's like the deepest places I've gone um, in myself have the like, like, I feel the deepest trust that we are going to evolve to the next levels of planet and make it, it it'll be messy. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be some breakdowns, I think. But I, I actually trust that we're going to make it through. Wonderful. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> well it's always a delight to be with you vicky and, and thank you um you know i think it, there's a role for the torchbearers who are three or four steps ahead of the curve and you've always been three or four steps ahead of the curve and and so you've you know you inspired the people who are two or three steps ahead of the curve and you know and, and that's and that's gonna gonna keep moving the world forward hey thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>